we continue our uh, study through First Corinthians, we uh, come to uh, an interesting chapter, to say the least. And uh, today, of course, we're going to look at headship and submission in particular. I think that's really what this chapter is about. Of course, uh, like in my Bible, the uh, title at verse uh, 2 is Head Coverings. Certainly it is about that, but let's not lose sight. We'll try to make sure we bring this out as we go through it. Head coverings are a symbol of submission, of a woman's submission. And the whole cha- the, the first part of this chapter is about headship and submission. So uh, there's a number of things here, but we don't want to get caught up in the symbol and then we miss the point, which is there are roles for husbands and wives, for men and women, in society and in the church and in the home. And so it's uh, in our day and age, there's few passages that are more needed than this passage. And so uh, we uh, will take our time as we go through it. I will, uh, by interest, and we'll be getting to the uh, to the uh, subject of head coverings until next, well, three weeks ago. I will take the position that Paul is uh, telling the women of the church to wear head coverings. So that, that's my position. I believe that's what is being said there. But uh, there's a lot more to be said uh, to that as well. So it's a, something to look forward to. A lot of neat things coming up. Let's just remind ourselves of what we saw last week. You'll click it will work. We saw three questions that we always need to keep up, keep keep before us in this slide because we dealt with how Christians live in this world, what it is for new covenant Christians to keep the law. We, that's kind of what we were talking about, and we saw three questions you need to keep before us: Does it bring glory to the Lord? Whatever I am about to say or do or think, whatever, are we being needlessly offensive to our brothers and sisters in Christ? First of all, and even some cases world, is it going to be helpful in the grand scheme of things, certainly in the kingdom of God, and will it help evangelize and edify? Uh, those are things we need, you know, we don't just walk through life doing whatever we want to do. We're, we're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we do all things for his glory. And then we kind of finish with a little bit of a uh, illustration, how we ought to learn to be comfortable in adverse weather. That is, when difficulty comes, and we use the illustration that, you know, today's a good illustration. Some of us probably would have went outside. The only thing to think about was getting inside, right? Getting in the heat. Or, uh, you get cold, and you immediately just kind of lose control of yourself, right? But when life becomes difficult, when the weather turns in your life, we have got to train ourselves not to just, how do I get out of this mess? But what can I do while I'm here? While you know, why is this happening to me? What can I do? How can I serve the Lord in it to be calm in difficulty? And that's again something that takes training, takes strong love for the Lord, takes great faith. That's some of the things that we dealt with last week. As we come to chapter eleven, especially in verse two, we see yet another list of some things that the Corinthian church were struggling with. Apparently, this first part was not church-wide thing there because he seems to commend them because overall they are maintaining the tradition that is the teaching that he has been given them uh, but there was obviously some struggle here and then when he gets down to verse 17 and he deals with what's going on with the Lord's table and some things there he says but in the following instructions I do not commend you so the church was really struggling in what we're going to get to starting in verse 17, but there is some effort, some problems here as well when it comes to headship and submission. And so we want to deal with that as well. Um, In fact, one way to help understand what's the overall point of this chapter is to see that chapters 11 through 14 deal primarily with order in the church. As we're going to see here this morning, God is a God of order. And in his creation there is order, and we would expect no less in the home there is order, and in the church there is order. There are roles to be played. God is not a God of disorder. And so that will come into play when we get to uh, chapters uh, 12 through 
12 through 14 and spiritual gifts. The problem with they were doing is exercising their gifts is that there was disorder. Uh, they were doing things in pride, but they weren't edifying people. They weren't, it wasn't glorifying the Lord in what they were doing. And so it's the same here when it comes to our roles and men and women in the church. If we disrupt the order that God has established, there is confusion and God's work suffers. The same can be said in the home and in society as well. In other words, we are living in a day in which this is being, the, what happens when we don't get these things right is being illustrated to us on a worldwide scale and certainly in a scale in this country as well, in our society as well. And we see the confusion and destruction when we don't do things God's way. So the first part, uh, the two uh, here is that we see uh, in uh, this uh, chapter uh, deals with male headship and female submission and how this will be worked out in the length of hair and the head coverings. These are things we'll get to, but uh, we need to be the reason I'm dealing only with verses 2 and 3 is before we get to the symbol of headship and submission, the symbols, which uh, are, would be head coverings and length of hair and so forth that deal with men and women. If you don't get the idea of submission and headship right, there's no sense worried about the symbols to those things, right? And as I say, the point here, while the head covering and the symbols are important, Paul makes that very clear in this passage, the, the, the greater point is that we understand our role in the church, not to mention the home. And, and so that is what we, we, no matter how you want to come down on the symbol, if you get the other part wrong, then it doesn't matter what, how, what your position is. So we want to make sure we get these important things uh, important. We might tend to think of the head covering issue as being the big thing in this chapter, but we again, it is the symbol of the headship and submission that we must understand. And if we haven't submitted to the Lord's commands, then wearing our hair a certain way or a co- or covering it in some way uh, is just being a hypocrite. Now, it's not to say that the symbols aren't important. Paul will make that very clear, but uh, we don't want to be a hypocrite on either side of this thing either. Um, and so our goal, as it always should be in Scripture, is to understand and obey what the text said. It doesn't matter what I feel about it, how I was raised, what the culture is doing around me. None of that ever can come into play with Bible study. Our only concern, certainly my only concern, is what is the text saying? What is God saying to us. And if you hold the view that, well, I'm looking at scripture, but if it goes against what I wanted to say that I'm not going to believe it, then you've already lost the battle anyway. And I suggest that if you're a Christian at all, you've got some serious problems. Some people come to this because, you know, part of this will be about the length of hair and you know, I've heard people say, well, how long is long? You know, men, women are to have long hair, men are to have short hair. Well, who knows? How long is long? I don't think that's a legitimate statement. In other words, you're, Paul and, and the Holy Spirit did not write something that's confusing that we can't understand what he's talking about. So while there are, that has to be established, what is long and what is short, it, it, it is knowable, and I don't think all that difficult, but if you're first response is always, well, you, you know, I mean, you can't really understand any of this. Then, of course, I think you've already lost the battle. <clears throat> we notice here in verse 6 where Paul says, For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So Paul thinks these things are important, the signs as well, and we must take care that we don't dismiss them because, well, I couldn't possibly do that because I might be embarrassed or whatever someone might think and all that kind of stuff. Um, just like we don't dismiss baptism in the Lord's table, there are signs and symbols of other realities, right? We don't dismiss them because, you know, someone, in fact, we know if you, if you refuse baptism, baptism doesn't save you. 
But if you refuse it, then the church cannot assume your salvation because you are refusing to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So you can't just spit symbols as unimportant. Paul's teaching in this passage must be interpreted in light of Scripture and not in light of the culture. There are a number of commentaries um, that assume that we must understand and interpret and apply Paul's words here in light of the culture of his day. One of the reasons why some people dismiss head coverings is, well, that was a Corinthian problem. Well, Paul says it's a Corinthian problem, no doubt. It's a problem in a lot of churches. Uh, again, not just the head coverings, but submission and, and proper headship. Uh, but Paul says in verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious over what he's just talked about, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. To say that this is merely a Corinthian province and we, none of this really means anything to us, first of all begs the question, why is it here? And Paul says that no, this is what, this is something that all the churches must deal with. So, I have never found, uh, arguments saying that, well, uh, this was a problem in the Corinthian culture. I never found those to be overly compelling. Uh, first of all, nobody really knows what the Corinthian culture was going on. There were several Corinthian cultures or cultures in Corinth at that day. Uh, it, it's very difficult to, to try to prove that there's any one thing going on here uh, that would apply to them and not to us. I've never found those um, arguments very good. He also in establishing the head covering, uses the universal argument of nature, long hair and short hair, again, which is a universal thing, uh, so to, to make this point. So, it, again, it just becomes very difficult for us to try to uh, say that this doesn't apply to churches today. Another thing I think that is extremely interesting to me is that really until about the time of the Women's liberation movement, uh, especially going into the 19th or 20th century, it was just universally uh, practiced where women covered their hair, their head when they went to church uh, worldwide. That's just how things were done. And it's interesting that it was when women began to throw off the, uh, the uh, headship authority of that the Bible teaches that the head covering went with it. So. You can't just dismiss that uh, without saying there's something significant going on there, right? So those are just some of the things that come into play in, uh, in, in how I understand these things. And I think we also have to be very careful about uh, saying that we have to understand the culture of the day to understand the Bible. Because otherwise a lot of people would not be able to understand the Bible until they were able to do a whole lot of historical research. And we know that's not the case. Historical research, cultural research can add great layers to Bible, to understanding the Bible, can help it open it up in a lot of ways, but it's not necessary to understand what was going on in Corinth for us to understand what Paul is saying. It's not, that's not the way I see it. I will also try to be very careful, and I've, and I've done this all through the book, I mean, Basically, last week was my fifth year anniversary here. I think I've been pretty consistent that when I deal with women and submission, I deal equally with men and headship, that we both have a responsibility to do things right. Very often, uh, you hear a lot of people stress submission, but they don't stress men being the head of the home and to be so in a right biblical way. And what this causes, of course, is many times for it to be lopsided. So men end up thinking that, well, my wife's got to submit to me, but they don't hold themselves equally accountable to love her as Christ loved the church and to be the kind of head that she joyously submits to. They were very hypocritical. Someone I know very well uh, told uh, some, uh, his wife that, Matthew 19, Jesus is telling men they can divorce in certain circumstances, but the women, uh, he's not speaking to women. Women don't have that right. Well, that's nonsense. That, that show, that, that, that's a result of thinking that, well, 
women have to submit, but I'm not held to the same accountability. And so we want to be very careful that as we study these things, we put equal uh, stress on both headship and submission in the proper way, in a biblical, loving way. Um, probably few things reveal man's fall into sin, like the battle of the sexes. Men tend to see women as something they are to control and use, and women try to resist the missiveness and step into the role of male leadership. And uh, society, the church, the home always suffers when we get these things out of whack. As we see here and know by experience, the sinners that make up church will bring their problems into the church because that's just, you know the church is composed of sinners. And we all struggle with these things. Plenty of Christian leaders, especially even today, but for generations now, have written about and promote the world's modern day attempt to completely dismiss the uh, different roles that God has given men and women. And there are churches out there who call themselves egalitarian who say that no, None of these distinctions matter anymore. That was just something Paul said back then. He's a bill chauvinist or whatever. That men and uh, women are equal before the Lord and they can, women can do anything a man can do in the church. Well, unfortunately for them, uh, they're showing their true colors. Some even try to use uh, only non-gender specific terms as we're seeing today. And they brought that nonsense into the church, trying to ignore all differences. And, and it just can't be done. And it's, uh, it's not just causes problems, it's sinful, it's unbiblical, it's ungodly. God has made us either male or female, and to in any way confuse that is ungodliness. And that's the point of what we're going to see here with head coverings and long hair and short hair, and men uh, being uncovered when they go into the church, is there are roles. You are to look and act the way God has made you. When I walk in, if I sit down behind you in a, in a church service, I should be able to tell what sex you are from behind. So I'm kind of maybe add a little bit more here, but I think that's the point. By the way you act and the way you dress, it's clear you understand who you are and you are going to live according to those parameters that God has told you to live. And so you see how more and more this world is throwing off all godly authority, all the authority of God, and saying, I will do what I want to do. Well, that's all the world can do what it wants to do, but in the church, we are responsible to do what the Lord tells us to do. So because Paul clearly writes on this subject of women submitting to men in the church in some way, we'll deal with that because that's a whole subject in itself, and in the family, the family sphere, they assume that he must be a male chauvinist. Uh, there are those who will take Galatians 3.28, which Paul wrote, by the way, and says there is neither Greek, Jew or or Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are one in Christ. And they will say, and you see that, we're not to make these distinctions anymore. Now, I'm sorry, that's not what Paul is saying. There are still Jews and Greeks, to some degree, right? There are slaves and there are free. Paul's not saying these things don't exist, but in Christ, we are all equal in Christ. I'll deal with that in just a moment. Uh, so you see the attitude. As soon as someone says, well, this is telling me that it's okay for a woman to be an elder in a church, for instance. Uh, you see their attitude is exposed right there, that they don't really, they're not going to read all of Scripture and uh, bring all that together before they interpret it. They're looking for a way to twist what Paul is saying to their own good. So approaching Scripture, picking and choosing what you want, appeals to the flesh, but of course we're not interested in doing that. Um, so, uh, they even some even use chapter 11, that there's what we're studying now, to support women preachers, because Paul deals with women 
they are to cover their head when praying or prophesying. So to say, we see it's okay for them to prophesy as long as their head's covered, which what's interesting is no one, none of them do that today. Uh, but, but no, Paul is, doesn't uh, contradict himself from one section to another. Paul's point is not that women can preach, but that they uh, there's an order in the church. Uh, women did prophesy early on, remember, in Acts, that when, when the Holy Spirit was being given during a transitionary period, sometimes women were filled with the Holy Spirit and they would prophesy. They would speak things that had not been recorded yet for the good of the church. But later on, when we get to the end of the book, Paul's going to make it very clear that women are not to do those things in the church. But there was, for a while, some of that was going on. Not that women were becoming pastors and all that kind of stuff, but only when the Holy Spirit happened to come upon somebody in the early church before the Word of God had been completely uh, revealed to them. So again, it's not that difficult, but it depends on what you're interested in uh, in submitting to the Lord or not. It's fundamentally dishonest, of course, to use Paul to refute Paul. Uh, You are merely appealing to what you like and dismissing what the Bible actually says. But uh, both these passages, are uh, Galatians and, and here, are inspired, and so both are true. Or neither are true, but they can't contradict each other because it's God's word. God can't be contradictory to himself, right? And of the above passage here, as I said in Galatians, is dealing with our position in Christ in salvation. And uh, not that we are to recognize different roles in the church, in the family, right? Uh, he's talking about if, if, if you are saved, you're in Christ, that a woman and a man are both saved the same way, they both have the same privileges in Christ, Uh, there's no difference in that sense. In in the Greek, in the Jew, we we talk a lot about that, but in Christ, Christ in the Old Testament dealt primarily with the Jews, but we live in a day now in which the gospel goes forth to everybody. So in that sense, we preach to all. We don't make, we don't have distinctions between who we would preach to and who we would let into the church and so forth. That's all he's saying there. Men are no more important than women any more than the government is more important than the citizenry, right? Both, but both are needed. You, you've got to have government for order, but as soon as the government considers itself to be more important than the people it governs over, you've got huge problems, right? And we're again feeling some of that today as well. We need each other. We need the government. The government needs us, obviously, or it has no purpose. And the same with men and women and husbands and wives. In fact, verse 3 sets all this up by reminding us that we all have different roles in society and in the church. Therefore, to rebel against this is to rebel against what it is to be human, to rebel against God. If you begin to think about this, how does he start this whole section about roles in the church how does he start this off? I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. There's a general statement that I think here man, in a general sense, we are all under Christ. We're, 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 in the, we're a bride of Christ. We're in the church. We're under Christ's authority. The head of the wife is her husband. I'll deal with this as all other translations have. The head of a woman is the man. I think in this case, and I'll explain in a moment, I think this is probably the better way to think of this. The head of the wife is, because he's given us general principles that, that, that everybody is under submission to somebody, right? That's because God has made this world to have order. So the head of a wife is her husband. And even in the Godhead, we see Christ, the head of Christ is God. So don't get all huffy thinking, well, I'm the husband, so I'm over my wife and my children, well, fine and dandy, but you're also in submission to uh, the church authority, you're in submission to Christ, however you are in head over your family must be in relationship to the fact that you are in submission to Christ. Christ is your head, so you can't do anything to your wife that he hasn't commissioned, right? So, so nobody is free to just do whatever they want to do. And, if, and he says, and what he's going to say is that it applies in the church 
as well. So he says here in, in verse 2, I, uh, he's talking about traditions. They have been careful to maintain the traditions. And these traditions are merely things that hadn't been recorded yet in Scripture. They were teachings of Paul. That, uh, in fact, if you go back and you read Acts 18, he spent a year and a half teaching the Corinthians uh, the things, the truth of, of, that he had been learned from Christ that would later be written down in Scripture. There is uh, those who say that, well, tra- there's traditions that nobody knows, and that becomes a, an excuse to bring all sorts of heresy into the church, you know, like Mariolatry, the worship of Mary. Well, there, that was a tradition in the early church, and, and that Paul's referring to those traditions. Never mind that you can't find any historical evidence of that, right? No, the traditions are merely the teachings that had that were oral at that time. And Paul commends them for uh, being taking those things seriously as they would because they were going to be inscripturated. But in verse 3, we can hear the authority and necessity of Paul's words, right? This, he says, is important and in some ways of first importance. Before he says we get into how we deal with each other in the church, how the church carries on its business, we must understand that there is organization. It's been like that from the beginning. He's going to bring, of course, uh, the creation into it. So he starts right there. He says, like I said at the beginning, we've got to get this right or the rest of it doesn't, we'll, we'll fall on our face. We won't get it right at all. <clears throat> so what are we to understand, he says? That God created the universe with order and that order is seen even in the Godhead, in, in the relationship between the Trinity. And he gives three ways this principle of headship and subordination that pervades the universe is seen, is revealed, so that you know, he's, he's setting up then the fact that it should, we should not be surprised that that same order is to be seen in the church. So here's a case, we've been talking about being free in Christ here lately, here's a case where being free in Christ doesn't mean that we can just ignore the structure that he has revealed to us. We are free to save ourselves from the destructive behavior of rejecting God's order. A woman is free in Christ to reject the idea of feminism that I can do whatever my husband does, whatever the man can do. She's free from that destructive behavior. And a man is free from the idea that as the head I can uh, use my wife and my family for whatever I want. That's destructive behavior. And we've been freed in Christ from that. Not to reject his order, but to live in it and to benefit from it. So we can say that we have been freed both from male domineering and feminism. Both will damage lives. And so we, first of all, number one here reminds us that we are in all in submission to Christ. And in the general order of things, men are to submit to Christ's headship. He is the head of the church. And so in one sense, we all have roles of submission. And so there is no need to uh, feel like, well, I have to, I have to submit to my husband, but he uh, doesn't have to submit. Oh, yes, he does. And when you see the attitude in a man that you can see clearly, he doesn't think that he has to be he's accountable to anybody, his family will suffer from that. And I've seen that over and over again. Those who willingly submit to Christ are in the church and those who do not, we might say, are outside the family of God. In one sense, there's only two kind of people in this world. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't all struggle in this, but there's two kind of people in this world. Those who have submitted to Christ as their Lord and Savior, and everybody else. And if we in the church are those who have submitted to Christ, then we shouldn't really have a problem with at least understanding and obeying this, you know, and wanting to do what Christ has us to do. So the first thing he says is that I think in this case, every man is under, in, in, uh, under Christ. Christ is the head of every man. I think that 
not talking there about just males, but mankind in general. Then secondly, he says that um, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, there's difficulty here, and this I'm going to explain this the best I can. You've really got to sit and just think about this. Every other translation, except the ESVs, at least the ones that I check, have this as the man, the woman, is uh, the head of a woman, is the man. Now, there's a sense in which that's okay. I wouldn't argue that too much. But I think in this case, the ESV rightly points out that Paul is using these as an example. And the reason I think this is important is because he's not saying that the head of every woman is every man. That women in general are subjective to men. That could create, and has created all sorts of problems, and that, that goes in a direction we don't want to go. He's just reminding us that in the general course of society, there are roles, and a, a wife is in submit, submission to her husband. Because not every woman in the church is in subjection to every man, right? So that, I think in this case, the ESV, Rightly, you can translate it all, both ways are right to translate, but it's getting at the point that Paul's trying to make. What I think the ESV could have done better is that it, from now on, it should just translate it man and woman and not bring the wife and husband into it. I think that kind of confuses things a little bit, but, you know, we we'll do the best we can. You've got to kind of sometimes just think through this to teach what's really being said here. And so, um, both work, but I think we need to be careful here because of thinking that Paul's point is that all women are submissive to all men because clearly that's not a biblical concept and that would create all sorts of problems. So the women in this church then would submit in this, in, for instance, to Jeff and I, not because we are men as such, but because we are elders in the church and we can only be elders in the church because we are men, but uh, we don't. They don't submit to us as men. They submit to their husbands as men. So, do we see why we must be careful of making this say more than the uh, context would allow? Women in general are not to submit to men in general in everyday life, and that's why I think it has to be it's a better way to understand verse uh, three there. Because we don't, we save ourselves from that confusion. Also notice that the words are singular. He doesn't say women, uh, the head of women are men. The head of a woman is a man. And that almost really can only be, uh, worked out in a marriage relationship. So you might say, well, daughters are specific to the, to their fathers, but I don't think Paul's trying to, uh, that's not the point of it. So we cannot teach, and I, and I think again, another point to be made, I don't think we can teach from the Bible that women can't be bosses at work, cannot uh, be government officials. I don't think the Bible really addresses that. I think some, perhaps, if by the, you know, what translation you're looking at here in verse 3, might try to force that. A case can be made that the way men are made and the way women are made creates problems when women maybe are bosses or things like that. But that's a whole other subject. I don't think we can use the Bible to uh, try to make that point. So his point is not that uh, not that uh, all women are subjected to all men, but that men and women have different roles. Again, let's not get, too, let's not get away from the point here. Women don't teach or exercise authority over men when it comes to church life. So it can be understood either way as long as you see the limits of each. So while we are all equal in Christ, yet in the home and in the church there are roles of headship and submission that a woman who refuses her role before her husband or a church is not submitting to the Lord either. In other words, as you read verse 3, you begin to see here something that 
God has made an order in the church. We are all submission to Christ. He's our head. Uh, the woman has a certain role in the home with her husband. And even in the Godhead, we're going to see here in a moment, there is an order and a headship submission to a good degree. And so if we throw that off, we're living in rebellion to the Lord. Some make the point that this principle of submission applies to every aspect of society and not just the home of the church. I've already alluded to that. But the problem is that Paul is dealing with the church and is not addressing society at large. And so I just don't think you can take this to try to prove something that's not meant. Once we start moving into society, we begin to have some real problems. Clearly, think about verse 8 and 9 indicates a general principle that men are to be leaders in the natural order of things, but I don't think this is concerning bosses and, and, and government officials and things like that. You know, verse 8 says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So there's something in the created order where men are to be the leaders to some degree, but again, that even that was more in the marriage context. Now, so I'm not again. I'm not trying to make a statement about outside of the church one way or another. That's, I'll let other people debate that. I'm just trying to deal with what I think Paul was dealing with. I do not think the New Testament addresses male-female relationships outside of the two spheres, the home and the church. And so I, I'm just not going to be concerned about that. We notice that Paul makes no distinction between personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality between the sexes. Paul doesn't say, well, here's some exceptions. That's not his point. No, that this is the way it is. Doesn't matter how smart the woman is. Doesn't matter how stupid the man is. It, this is the way it is. We'll deal with that here as we close. <clears throat> Both are equal before God. And in spirituality and as human beings. And let's, and, and let's face it, in some cases, some women exceed some men in any number of areas. And there is no need to try and downplay this as if a man still can't be the godly head of a home just because his wife sometimes might be smarter or more spiritual, better with finances. All that can be true. But that doesn't mean the man isn't to exercise a certain level of headship, and that a wife is to submit to that. And that's what we call complementarianism. We are different. God made men one way, God made women another way, and when we come together, we fit. And when you two are the same come together, they don't fit. If the women are, are different, Men are different. We think differently overall. On, you know, and, and so that works together in the home and in the church. So it's not based on some supposed male superiority. That's usually where people immediately get their hackles up because when you're saying men are better than women, nowhere does the Bible say that. That's, that's an assumed, that's an assumption. That's not what we're talking about there. The Bible doesn't teach that. Very often there are women in the church who are every bit as spiritual as the men, maybe more spiritual. There are some who will be smarter. There are some who, in some ways, really be better leaders in some ways. But we don't throw off God's order just because we're different. We can throw into the mix that God has made men and women different. That makes it easier on the, on, the, on the average for a man to lead and easier for a woman to submit but obviously that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions and that there's a lot of nuances to that no one's, no one's denying any of that we're just saying what does God tell us to do in these situations sin tempts men to let their wives lead in the home or else sin tempts men to domineer their wives Sin makes women want to usurp their husband's role. We understand that. But remember, God gave this idea of headship and submission before the fall. As Paul points out there, God created man first, and women didn't come from man. So 
There, there is something you got to, you got to think through those things. The attacks on the patriarchy today are attempts to get women to reject any form of submission. But they do that to their peril, as well as to society's peril, the church's peril, and family peril. I've seen, you know, I remember seeing a couple people years ago, a woman wearing a t-shirt, and this was a woman who would call herself a Christian, as far as I could tell. On Wednesdays, I fight the patriarchy. Well, I'm sorry. What you're saying is that on Wednesdays, I rebel against God's order. It doesn't matter that men have definitely abused their positions. No one's denying any of that. It's wrong. A lot of women have suffered because of that. Got nothing to do with anything. Uh, God has set these things up. So this is what we do to obey the Lord. Just because people abuse things doesn't mean that you just throw it all out, right? But if a woman who might see herself as more mature spiritually than her husband, or maybe even the elders, if she is truly spiritual, she will look for ways to exercise her gift to help her husband, to help the home, to help the church. Not in a role of leadership, because God has said that's not how that's not going to happen. So you show your spirituality, your maturity, in your ability to submit. And the same holds true to, to the man, right? In, in that I submit to Christ. I don't abuse my family. I don't abuse my position because I know that Christ is my head. Right? So it works for everybody. Likewise, a husband who might realize that his wife is more qualified in some areas than he, if he's a good leader, he will seek to incorporate her gifts to aid him and the family, and not to try to do it himself, and, and perhaps make a mess of things. So being the head doesn't mean you are to do everything yourself. How many women have tried to advise their husbands because they have some useful insight, but under the guise of being in charge, a husband won't listen to anything she says, and the whole family suffers for it. You have chaos. Because he doesn't try to develop his wife's talents, that being a good leader is to recognize how things should work and, and facilitate that, right? Not to say, well, I'm in charge, no matter what the consequences are. So again, it's understanding what good headship is that is so important. The Bible says that, he, that Eve was a suitable helper to Adam. And if you ignore her abilities, you are ignoring the reason she was given you to help you to have a family and to function in society, not to butt heads. So as elders, if we're smart, we will recognize that we have women who are theologically astute, spiritually mature and wise, and we will listen to what they have to say in the right context. We'll be thankful for their influence, but it will be done in the order that God tells us to do it. We will not have her Preach the word, teach the word to the men, because Paul makes that very clear that's wrong, but that doesn't mean there aren't other ways to incorporate what they know. This is why Paul tells us that if a woman has a question, in the sense of questions about what the elders are doing, what, you know, in a critical way or in a rebellious way, she is not to publicly uh, state that, she is to ask at home, she is to ask privately. What's going on? And there's nothing wrong with asking questions, but there's a right way to do it. If a woman can stand up in church or in a public forum and question the leadership, gets things out of whack. It's just not the way God wants things to be done. <clears throat> this is true in home as well. In one sense, God has placed the burden of the family on the man and has not placed it on the wife. So let him bear it as much as is possible. There, there's a sense in which a woman, you know, and I could, I've seen women, of, of, of women who are living in a situation where their husband is not wise, the husband is, is, is because of poor leadership, things are not doing well, and, and, and or, or the decision is going to be, she feels it's going to be bad, and, and the, the advice is, okay, you've done all you can do, if he's not going to listen to you, if he's not going to take your advice, I He's going to have to answer to the Lord tonight. The fact that he has been, God has said you are the head of the home, 
means he's going to, at the judgment, have to answer for it. So, that takes the burden off of you. Yeah, you might have to suffer some because of the poor decision, but your conscience is clear. Let the burden be put on him, let him deal with it. So there's a sense there's some freedom there that you can uh, uh, take. <clears throat> and I doubt there's a man here who can't remember a time when he should have listened to his wife. It didn't. Am I alone? I mean, you know, if I'm the only one, fine, I'll, I'll accept it. But I doubt that's the case. Eh? Then lastly here, we'll, we might, we'll, we'll close this up soon. Uh, we see here the... Uh, Perhaps the most interesting statement here, when we see that the Son submits to the Father, when he says the head of Christ is God. Christ is submissive to the Father in some way. So before we start complaining about submission, let us remember that even within the Godhead, there is order, there is headship, there is submission. It is, therefore, in the very nature of God, and in our lives, our lives are to reflect the order and the cooperation of the Godhead. I mean, order is in the relationship of the very, in the very nature of God. And so it's no surprise then that our relationship with each other at large should reflect the God of order, the God of relationships. In fact, this explains why God or, uh, ordains order, because it's in, it's in his nature to do so. We might say say it like this. Everyone is under someone, so use it for our good and assume that God knows what's best. Because at the end of the day, when you rebel against his order, you're saying that God has made a mistake. Why pick against the bricks and just make life intolerable? Now, there's a lot of debate about this relationship between the Godhead, whether the Father and the, the Son's submission was something that is from eternity, or whether it's something that happened only in relationship to a redeeming man, that the, that the Son submitted to the Father so that he could redeem man, right? And I doubt whether, I would take the position that this is an eternal relationship. I don't believe it's something that the Godhead did just so that he could redeem sinners, right? I don't think there was some point where the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the three entities of the Trinity, one day did rock, paper, scissors, and oh, you'll, this one third of you will be God, the other third will be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They didn't change their nature. God never changes. Who God is has always been. I think this relationship has always been God is love. So there always has to be someone, an object of that love from eternity. It could, it could never begin in time, right? So I, I don't take the position that this relationship of submission to the Father happened at the incarnation or whatever. I think it's something that is eternal. Uh, there's a lot of debate over that, I should say, to some degree. But I, I think it's probably more speculation and not helpful and, and really not needful. Most important is that Paul ties all this together so that you cannot submit to one and not the other. A woman cannot be submissive to Christ, but not her husband. A husband cannot be submissive to Christ, yet refuse to be head of the home. And we cannot reject God's order for the church and the home unless we reject and live contrary to the relationship of the Trinity. I think that's the important thing to see there. So our roles and how we demonstrate these roles outwardly are a reflection of the very nature of the Godhead. And you begin to see how awful it is when we throw those things off. Perhaps the most important thing to remember, with this I close, <clears throat> is that this is about love and making things run smoothly and working together for the common good, both in the church and the home. It is not about tyranny. It is not about subduing women or anything like that. Headship that puts down and subdues doesn't work to make his wife and those under him to be their absolute best. That's what a, a good husband, a good leader does. It looks at the ones that they have authority over. How can I help you? How can my leadership bless this mess? 
if you are if you look at leadership as your people uh, or whoever is under you is to serve you, you're being contrary to God, to the nature of God, and contrary to the whole point. So, so in the same way, elders uh, that eldership that doesn't try to develop everyone's gifts for the good of the church, but instead has to do everything is a good leadership, and that's. That's something, especially if you've got just one pastor, one, one pastor, and not a multitude of elders, it's easy to follow that trap. So the pastor does everything. The elders make all the decisions. And they, instead of delegating things to people for the, that they can do things better than they can. So husbands, if you aren't trying to make, uh, it, doing your best to make your wife all she can be as a woman, and to make your children to be all they can be, trying to unlock their full potential, you're, you're failing in your leadership to some degree. You're not there. They're not there to serve you. You're there to uh, to develop that family all for the glory of God to their fullest potential. And it's amazing how easy that is to forget. And so, in verse three, we had the facts, and now we move to. How that gets worked out, especially in the church, uh, to some degree in, in everyday life. And we see that there are areas in which we are given outward signs, both spiritual and natural, that reveal God's order. And I think that the blessing there is that they're a reminder. They remind, a woman who, who walks into the church wearing a symbol of submission, even with this long hair, would, I think would have difficulty if she understands why she's wearing these things, why it's, you know, what's, what's it for? She's going to have difficulty rebelling and usurping her place. So that's what symbols are for. They, they remind us, right, of where, who we are and what our role is. And so I think that's the point that we want to get into for going in a few weeks. And so in closing, as we take the Lord's table, we are Observing the symbol. Symbols are important. We need those reminders. Those physical reminders. Here's a reminder that I am not my own. I've been bought with the price. That I get my life from Christ. I didn't just, uh, my life is not my own. I didn't get my life on my own. It was given to me. I am Christ. My salvation is a, is a, is a gift of grace. You, as I eat with you, I remind you, we are a family, we are a body, we are the body of Christ in this local church. And I am here to serve you, we're here to serve each other, right? We have a reminder here of the importance uh, of who Christ is to us.